and welcome again. It's David and Brent. Today's July the 30th, the last day of July. So I guess we have a few hours to wrap up. Probably when you're listening to this, it's already August. Thanks for joining us. It's raining in Indiana. It's raining in uh, western Nebraska where Brent's at. So probably a sign of conversations we'll be having heading into the August as we think about yields and final crop size. So Brent, we're not going to talk about that a lot today. You wrote an interesting, you had a couple articles this week. So let's start off by talking about interest rates, a topic that is really important to the farm economy. It was important before COVID. It's gone even more important. So what do you think about and what did you write about? I wrote an article about uh, interest rates and talked about how they've really trended a lot lower. And as we've been pointing out for a long time, I mean, interest rates have been on a very long-term downward trend for quite some time. I mean, you know, all the way back into before 2000s, actually, if you go back further than that, the trend is clearly downward. But recently, with the COVID outbreak and the softening of the economy, we've seen a really big decline in interest rates, both short and long term. And so the first chart I talk about is the 30-year fixed rate mortgages that are available in the United States. And, you know, this is a little bit of a different product than what most of us can borrow for at the farm level, but it's still, I think, insightful nonetheless, because it mirrors the same kinds of trends. And you know, think about that. Yield on 30-year treasuries was down to 0.99%, today at 1.3%. Just a really, really big decline. So, you know, if you're refinancing a home mortgage, you're right around 3% for 30 years, which is really, really low. 10-year treasuries were the next thing we looked at. Uh, We have a question in the forecast network about those. It's will they fall below 0.5%. I am right now at uh, 0.85%, the last, or 85% chance they will. The last data in the FRED database today, I think the low was 0.59. I think David and I looked, CNBC's quoting them at about 0.54 today. You know, we're getting awful close to that barrier now. A little bit of a up slight uptick here since the peak of the uncertainty around COVID. But ultimately, I mean, these are really, really low rates. Something to, to keep in mind uh, as we go forward. Something you, you want to watch. Farm loan rates here shown this figure have not seen as big a decline, but we got to remember, one, these are quarterly data. And so what we've got are operating uh, loans, intermediate loans, real estate. You can see they're all pretty close to each other. Real estate, of course, carrying the lowest rates. We're as low as I think probably most farmers ever borrowed at in their career. I think when the data come out and are updated, they're probably going to be even lower than that. I I know just talking with some lenders, some of the rates being quoted now are, like I said, career level lows. So, so Brent, I, I want to just, I find that chart really interesting. So I want to jump in there. 20 years ago, 2000, it doesn't seem like that long ago, right? The average interest rate on these farm loans were 9 to 10%. Completely different business and climate. And then we moved to 2010 and they're around 7, 7.5%. And now we're, we're down here around that 5% mark five, five and a half percent. So a huge change in just a, a couple decades. So it yeah. seems like a short period of time. It was a long time. It's a long trend, but we have to keep that trend in mind as we think about the implications for our business. This last chart, just the prime rate and the prime rate is kind of interesting to look at. You know, most operating loans, are, if they're variable, are tied to some kind of a mover. 
oftentimes it'll be the prime loan rate. Sometimes it's other ones, but you can see prime loan rates started the 2000s, 9.5% today, 3.25, I believe. You can just see the business cycles uh, involved here. There's the first big recession that we had uh, there. Then things really improved, rates headed up, and here's the financial crisis. And we went down to 3.25 and stayed there for dang, dang near a decade. Not quite, short of eight years, you know, at 3.25. And then really started to edge up, got all the way back up to 5.5% before, you know, this last huge, huge decline. Chairman Powell was out just the other day <laughs> talking about interest rates. He had a pretty good quote. He said, we're not even thinking about thinking about thinking about thinking about changing interest rates at this point. So his point is kind of like, no, it's not even on the table. I think what he's telling is that those short-term rates are going to be low for a while. And I think that's becoming pretty evident that the downward trend or or the the problems that have been created in this recession are substantial and they are going to take a long time to get sorted out it's not just going to bounce right back and dave and i were talking about this but it used to think of big sectors of our economy travel leisure so far away from getting back to normal and so much evidence i think that more and more of the businesses involved in that space are going away and probably not coming back anytime soon. So it's uh, it's really having a big impact on the economy. So what does it all mean for ag? And this is where I think it's, it's important to just step back and think about what all this means. And I, and I think there are a couple things. One, these are among the lowest rates we've ever seen. And I think uh, we need to really think about if you if you haven't, thought about uh, refinancing some things it's you know this is as low as we've been for a long long time now the other hand we've been low for a while so the magnitude of the benefit is probably pretty modest when you think about capital expenditures i mean these rates are certainly giving us some incentive making it a bit cheaper to purchase capital equipment other depreciable assets but again, remember, we were already low before, and so I don't think these really low rates are going to go out and you know incentivize a lot of new capital expenditure in the farm sector. So if you're in that space, it helps, but I don't think it's going to provide a lot of help. Where I think this is setting up to be quite a bit of risk is really in the farmland market. And the closer rates get to zero, they tend to have a really hyperbolic impact on farmland prices because we start discounting those future cash flows with very low interest rates. So it tends to push valuations really high. If they are to change, if they were to change, which seems somewhat unlikely at the present, it could unwind rapidly. And so I think in the short term, all signs point to you know this being around for a while. But in the longer term, I think it's making maybe some of these asset values a little bit in a fragile state. So in the sense that they're really susceptible to movements in interest rates on the upside. And uh, it's it's really hard to predict when the trend's going to end, but it doesn't mean it's going to go on forever. And, and that's kind of where I want to close that. I think it's really important to step back and realize 
this low interest rate environment has different impacts when you think about the cost of servicing debt versus how that impacts asset valuation. Warren Buffett always talks about it has a, like the, a gravity effect. So as interest rates gets close to zero, assets really take off and they get really large asset values. And then as interest rates turn higher, it's like more gravity and everything sort of shrinks back to earth really quickly. And so that's something to really keep in mind. I think it's really important, to, another point you made to keep in mind, and we'll talk about this in an upcoming outlook piece that we're going to do on the macro economies. The outlook has changed a lot. Remember those early Q3 forecasts that were going to have some pretty impressive growth in the U.S. economy? So it was going to be a little lower in Q1, a big step down in Q2, and then the recovery was going to start really strong in Q3. And then that was probably the peak, right? And Q4 was going to be really big. Well, here we are one month into Q3. And I like looking at the gasoline usage. That's a question we have in the forecast network. I'm doing an update of that. You can check that out. It's been in a stalled recovery for the last six to eight weeks. In Brent's point here on the interest rate outlook, we thought the economy would be really, you know, starting to heat up at this point. And if anything, we're still measuring a cool down. And I think that is a, the sign is, we're not debating the magnitude. We're still thinking about the, the sign and the sign is not going the way we thought it was going to go just 60 days ago. That's a really important realization to think about. Yeah, and we're talking about another trillion dollars of fiscal stimulus from government. Or, or more. Uh, and, well, yeah, most certainly going to be more because that's what the Republicans came out with was a trillion. And that's like the beginning of the negotiation. It's going to end up higher. So, I mean, uh, we're having to throw a lot, a lot of money at this thing to kind of get the ship righted. And if you listen to the chair of the Federal Reserve's comments, they, I would say they were not real positive. And one of his points is, you know, when you have this much disruption in the labor market, it, it doesn't solve itself overnight. You know, it's, it's going to take a while to get people back in jobs and working again. And uh, until, you know, they kind of get this uncertainty related to the virus or people get more comfortable with the reality of the situation, it's going to be hard to get things going again. And so it's a tough tough forecast, I think. So in the meantime, though, I think we've got the benefit of low interest rates. Uh, I'm not going to say they can't go lower because they absolutely could. But the benefits of them going lower at this point are not that much (laughs) relative to the the, the, the potential for them to go higher. So in the short term, I think we're pretty safe, but it's something you, you know you want to think about if you're exposed to the risks that they go higher. Switching gears and wrapping up, you wrote a summary of your Midnight and Chernobyl book. I look forward to reading that this weekend. We were talking about it beforehand. Take a look at that and see how many times you can substitute Russia and Chernobyl with COVID. And so it's interesting how the human behavior play out, you know, using science but to make decisions, but the science isn't as perfect as anybody would like it to be. You know, we talked about the medicinal vodka and the Russian government yeah. saying there's no evidence that that's going to work. U.S. was offering to help and the Russians like, no, you're just going to use it to spy on us. It's just a very, very interesting corollary. I want to go ahead, Brent. Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I mean, it's just really wild, I think, how much similarities there are between these kind of catastrophic events and all the mistakes that get made. You know, they they couldn't measure how bad the reaction was out of control. Their instruments had a 50% margin of error. 
I mean, we're dealing with the same thing, right? Uh, and there's a lot of debate over reasonable people on both sides with good points saying, no, you got to do this. And other people say, no, you got to do that. And uh, it's just really, really interesting. And then the whole thing, as I've said before, I think we would have been better off if this thing would have started in the United States. There wouldn't have been as much uncertainty about it. But the amount of uncertainty with that starting in China, we knew they were lying, which they almost certainly were as to how bad it was. So everybody filled in the blanks and they did the same thing there. I mean, when this came out, you know, the Western press finally figured out something was going on. You know, they're running headlines, you know, 2,000 people dead uh, in atomic core. There, there were other Western press saying, you know, it could have been 15 or 20,000. And there were, there were 50, less than 50 actually killed in the explosion. So the press tends to like fill in the void of how bad things really were. And I think we see some of that today as well. And so I just, um, I found it, I found it to be really interesting. It's a long book, but it was, it was interesting. All right. So to wrap up, I, we wrote a ideas that make us better. One that I kind of enjoyed, it's called $1 Bob, and it's the importance of knowing the rules. And so Bob Barker was the longtime, I'm aging myself, right? So was a longtime host of The Price is Right. And at the beginning of every part of the show, they would have contestants row, and the four people would be on contestants row. And they had to guess the value of the prize that they were putting out there, and whoever got closest got to advance to the next round. You didn't have to watch it very long to realize somebody would say, $1 Bob, and Maybe the, the the Instapot in the article that we use was really around 60 bucks. Everyone's guessing 65, 67, 70. And all of a sudden they came in with a $1. And the $1 would be a long ways away from the actual price. But the rule of the game was the contestant to the actual retail price without going over. And so if you're the third or fourth person to guess, you're not only trying to get a guess that's closest to the actual price you're trying to get a guess that's better than everyone else and so if you know everyone else has overshot it or potentially overshot it you're really trying to make your guess relative to everyone else's guess and so one dollar bob is a interesting way of playing the game into the bounds of the rules that lets you really open up your opportunities to win so the point of this is to really set back and think about what are the rules of the game that we're playing and how can we use those rules and not getting frustrated uh, when things don't go our way, when somebody else is using the rules? And I think about this a lot with respect to USDA forecasts. Yes, there's errors and there's shortcomings, but that is the gold standard. And so in a lot of ways, we just need to realize that this is sort of the $1. Like, well, it's the best it's the best forecast that's out there. And so that's the one we're all going to trade off of. And, and this is a lot of examples in, in either you're playing a board game with your kids or you're trying to buy a company or expand your business. There's all these rules and we got to know the rules and that helps us navigate the game. So we all want to win, but we also need to win knowing the rules because that can help us a lot. I think that's a super important point, especially on the USDA forecast because everybody, everybody loves to argue with those forecasts, right? And they're going to come out with a, a big one and in August and there's going to be a lot, of, oh, well, they're wrong. They're wrong. And you can sit there and argue and wonder if they're wrong and, Maybe they will be wrong, proven wrong ultimately, but that's a, usually a good way to lose a lot of money is arguing with the referee. And just like in Little League Baseball, it doesn't do much good to argue with the umpire. The umpire's 
calling the balls and strikes and arguing with them is probably not going to help your cause very much. So I think, you know, understand the rule of the game. And right now the rule of the game is that USDA is the gold standard in terms of those numbers. So that's what we're, that's what we're thinking about. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining this week. We have a couple new questions coming out this week. So look for that. Going to zero in on that August was the report Brent mentioned. Anyway, stay uh, close to the forecast network, update your forecast. Brent encouraged me to change my forecast a lot on a few. Because, of course, when it comes to Brent and I, the rule, the $1 Bob rule here is I just got to be Brent. So anyway. <laughs> he does All a right. good job of it, too. <laughs> I just remind him of when I do beat him. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks, and have a good weekend.